Amen, amen. You can be seated. Glad you're here this morning. We are in Luke chapter 23, verses 13 through 25. I'd encourage you to go ahead and turn there in your Bible. If, the, if you don't have a Bible, there's the Bible's in the chairs in front of you. That'd be our gift to you. We'd love for you to take that. Uh, and we'll be on page 883 in that Bible. Uh, but it's the Word of God that does the work. I mean, His Word is powerful, and we believe that. That's why we spend time studying it. So I'd encourage you, uh, if you know somebody that needs a Bible... Uh, would, would, would use it, we'd encourage you to take it to them as well. Um, uh, also, the version Live Notes, if you like to have the little points and the outline, I guess, uh, those that's out there as well. You'd be welcome to, to follow along. Turn off your notifications so you're not tempted to surf Facebook instead of listen to the sermon. It's a little bit more important than Facebook. Um, uh, and so I would just encourage you to, to be able to set that aside. But all right, so 13, Luke 23, 13 through 25, Jesus has been arrested. And since that moment, uh, in, in, he's praying in the garden. Uh, he prays for the Father's will to be done, not his own. And from that moment, the, this growing circle of isolation and rejection begins to grow around him. He is betrayed by Judas, one of his 12. The, the Jewish mob comes out behind Judas to arrest him. And so so we begin to see this rejection begin to take place. And then uh, his apostles abandon him. He goes and is tried uh, as the trial begins. He's alone. The one who did follow him or the two who followed him followed at a distance. And then Peter, in the midst of Jesus being tried, Peter, another of the twelve, betrays him. And then as the night goes by, the Jew, Jewish leadership, uh, through two trials, uh, officially reject him. They reject him as their Messiah, reject him as the, as the divine son of God, the divine son of man, the eternal son of God. And they reject him as their king. Uh, and it, it, be, it turns into the next morning, and uh, not only have the Jews then rejected him, but they bring him to Pilate, and Pilate rejects him. Herod rejects him as king. Uh, Jesus is being rejected. This is all moving toward the point where he is going to hang on the cross. This one that we have studied over the course of two and a half years now through Luke, the prophet, the priest, the king that we have seen established by God and sent from God uh, will hang completely isolated, uh, isolated and all alone, rejected by those he came to save as the sacrificial lamb. Now, prophet, priest, and king giving himself as a sacrificial lamb. He's going to die in our place and for our sins so that we might live. And, and, and this passage, verses 13 through 25, is the moment that we see the sentence handed down. The trial has been underway and he is about to be sentenced in the midst of his innocence. So pick it up in verse 13 of chapter 23. Pilate then called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people. I need to point something out for you there because to this point in the trial, it has been the religious leaders and, and, and Pilate and Herod. So there was originally, it was Jesus being arrested, brought to Annas, who was a previous high priest. Annas questions him and sends him to Caiaphas. And Caiaphas is the current high priest, and Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish ruling council, overnight begin to ask him questions and condemn him. And then the next morning, in an official capacity, Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin condemn Jesus and bring him to Pilate. Pilate is a Roman governor of Judea. He sits in authority over that section of, of, of Israel for Rome, and Pilate is, is uh, going to reject him as well. But he's sending him to Herod, hoping he can rid himself of some problems. When Jesus is sent back, what we see happen is Pilate doesn't just call the Jewish leadership. He calls the Jewish people. So now it's the Jewish people and the leaders in Pilate's courtyard. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people. So this is no longer just a crowd of maybe 100 or so people. This is whoever heard Pilate's call to come to his courtyard to be a part of this process. So Pilate, and, Pilate then called to the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people and after examining him before you, behold, I do not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. He's innocent, Pilate says. Verse 15, neither did Herod for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. Now this is ironic He's innocent, but I'm going to punish and release him. It's two things don't really go together. Now, just a quick note. 
in your Bible, if you're reading the ESV, you're likely going to see verse 16 move immediately to 17. If you're reading the, uh, I think the NASB and uh, a few others have the, have verse 17 in parentheses. The oldest, most reliable manuscripts don't have verse 17. They think that was some scribe, someone wrote it in to help us understand the transition here. It says, I will therefore punish and release in verse 16, move to verse 18. It says, but they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. There was, there was a tradition that on the Passover, in the midst of this fe- festival, Pilate would allow someone to be freed from prison. He would set somebody free. And they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. This is the last phase of Jesus' trial. By its end, Pilate who has already affirmed Jesus' innocence three times, is going to sentence Jesus to be crucified. Somehow. In some fashion, some tragic miscarriage of justice occurs. He's innocent, but will condemn him to die. Now, in a day and age, in a day and time where justice is at the top of our priority list, like this is one of the things we fight for. This is one of the things we won't stand for. Any kind of injustice like this, this is something we can feel, right? Like this is something that should hit home to us. This cry for justice, a cry for justice is the foundation of so many people across our country. The angst that we have felt for some time in our nation, as you listen to the the media screaming about all of the injustices that are taking place around us. Some of these are perceived. People just assuming that they're victims. Some of it's real. Some of them is truly people who are being victimized and oppressed and, and, and suffering under injustice. I mean, just as an example, you, you consider this April 4th, I believe is the actual day. Um, this year marks the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King's assassination. And it's even strange calling it an anniversary because anniversaries typically we associate with celebration. But it marks the 50th year since Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. And you know what we've learned these last several years? Is that the progress that was made by the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s, that that he was a major leader in, that he stood out and called out injustice in our nation? You know what we've learned? Is that still exists? It's real. People are being oppressed. Nation, the, the systems of our nation are oppressing and weighing on people. Acts of injustice are carried out against people because of the color of their skin, the ethnicity by which they are, uh, um, in, in which they live. It's not to deny that there was some change and some progress made, but, but it's still real. And we feel that. And whether you, whether, and, and the sad thing is that as, as memorials have been, been held and articles have been written, there's people on every side of this. Some demonstrating he's a great leader. He was a, he was, he was a leader in that moment. He, he was used to demonstrate the injustices. While others will stand up and, and berate him. But whether you agree with Martin Luther King Jr. or not, he didn't deserve to be killed for what he stood for. He was right. We are a racist people. 
our nation has oppressed a people because of who they were. And he showed us our sin. And there was a, his assassination is a tragic miscarriage of justice. And we feel this. I almost feel the weight of it even now, 50 years later. We, we feel it because intrinsic to us, part of, part, of, part of eating the fruit, part of the sin was this recognition, this reality, this, this understanding of right and wrong. We now have this sense of fairness and a desire for justice and a recognition that injustice reigns around us. You think about this. Why do you think it angers us, and rightly should, to hear about a people oppressed, to, to hear about a husband who beats his wife, to hear about parents who, who chain their children to beds, Shocking. It should break our hearts. We feel this because we desire justice. To hear about children who have molested and treated, treated by, uh, horrifically, taken advantage of and abused by those who should be protecting them. We feel this. Everywhere we look, there's drastic and radical injustices that we see, we feel. But if we're not careful, because these are just words on a page, we can read these words, this tragic miscarriage of justice, and just read past them and breeze right past them and not see what's happening. Jesus, the innocent Son of God, is sentenced to die. How? How could this have happened? How could such a tragic injustice occur? I think to see this, to see the answer to this, we need to look at this from the perspective, the three perspectives that are presented here. The accusers, the, the Jewish accusers, the, the, the Roman judge Pilate, and then Jesus, the accused. And in some way, they're all pursuing justice. That's, I mean, you think about that. That's what a trial is supposed to result in. Justice. In the pursuit of justice, in the Jewish pursuit of justice, they committed injustice against Jesus. The Jewish leaders are the instigators in all of this. It could be said, it could be said that Jesus is at fault for not backing down. Like, he, he shouldn't have been performing all those miracles, casting out all those demons, healing all those sick people, making blind people see, lame people walk, deaf people hear. Jesus had no business doing any of that. Jesus shouldn't have gone into the temple and told them that their religion was empty or that the leaders were hypocrites. He had no business going into the temple to their, to their uh, central headquarters and telling them that they were condemned to die. It's Jesus' fault. And that's exactly how the Jews felt. Right, these Jewish leaders were incensed by Jesus. They had begun to despise Jesus. They had planned and, and begun to conspire to murder Jesus because they, 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 were, they, they had been called hypocrites by, them, by him. They, they had been rejected by him. And people had been led away from them by him. So with the help of Jesus, they devised this plan. They come up with this, this plan to, to rid themselves of Jesus. And, and in their mind, you think about this, in their mind, if Jesus really is not to be trusted, if Jesus really is empowered by the, by the power of Satan, which was their accusation at one time, if Jesus really is a liar about his identity as the Son of God, if Jesus really is a blasphemer, then they are doing the right thing. In their blindness, they are pursuing justice But do you see what they did? When they go to Pilate, we saw this last week, when they go to Pilate, they are so convinced that they need to set Jesus out as one who is not just a problem for Jerusalem or for the Jewish nation. They need to set Jesus out as a problem for Rome. And so they lie. They trump up charges. They lie. They twist the truth. 
And they present Jesus as one who is committing insurrection, that's leading a rebellion. Do you remember the, do you remember the charges? They said, hey, he is misleading our nation. He is forbidding us to pay taxes to Caesar. He is making claims to be Christ a king. Yeah, maybe Jesus shouldn't have gone around doing all those good things. But who in the world are they to start to lie and defame him? If you got to, this just came to mind. I haven't all thought, just feel like I must say it. So if you don't like it, well, I mean, you can't not hear it. But if you think you're working justice, but you're doing it with a bunch of lies and mistruths, twisted truth, that's not justice. Justice is wrapped in righteousness. Justice is wrapped up in truth. They go hand in hand. This is not justice, what they're doing. They are the instigators of all this. As they bring him to be tried by Rome, and Pilate begins. He's already, already once, before this passage, he's already once said, he's innocent, I don't see any guilt in him. What did they do? They pursued him even more urgently. When Pilate finds out, well, man, this is too much for us. I don't want to deal with this. When he is indifferent towards Jesus and his innocence, he hands Jesus off to Herod. He sends him to Herod to to rid himself of the problem. And when they they go to Herod, the, the, the Jews don't wait for Jesus to come back and find out what happened. They follow him. These Jewish leaders follow him. And when Herod does nothing, even though Jesus doesn't speak, The text tells us that they vehemently, did I say it right? No, doesn't matter. They fiercely, that's a better word, they fiercely, fiercely accused him. They would not let it go. They would not take no for an answer. And so now, here they come back. You see this happening right here in front of us. Jesus is sent back to Pilate, and Pilate's like, he's innocent. I'm just going to punish him and let him go. What did they do? Look at it, verse 18. But they all cried together. The leaders and the Jewish people. This growing circle of rejection. We will not have him as our king. Give us Barabbas. Let the guilty guy go and you keep the innocent one. And then again, he's pushing and he's pressing in verses 21 and 23. But but look, he's innocent. And what do they say? Crucify! Crucify him! Crucify him! Their pursuit of justice was not just. They were chumping up charges, twisting truth against Jesus. There was nothing just about this. There was no equity in their dealings. There was no fairness in their dealings. It was an act, outright act of in. Justice, their pursuit of justice was a farce because they wanted their way. Well, they weren't the only ones. You see, Pilate has a perspective, and we can kind of see it laid out here. In Pilate's pursuit of justice, he concedes to injustice with the Jews. You think about this. Pilate is the judge in the situation. Like, he's, he's got one job in this whole thing, Right? It's listen to the opposing views. This is a trial. This is, this is a time that a judge sits and he listens to the opposed, opposing views. His role is to ensure that justice is carried out. He hears the disagreement and he offers his opinion. He offers his perspective, an unbiased, supposedly an unbiased view. He's got one job. And he failed. Miserably. Verse 13 through 16, Pilate called together the chief priests, uh, uh, rulers, and the people. You brought this man to me as one who is misleading the people? And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty. Boom. He's not guilty. This is the second time he's said it already. He said it in the verses previous. He's not guilty. And, and guess what? Herod didn't find him. Neither did Herod. Herod didn't find anything wrong. And, and, and verse 15 kind of implies for us that if Herod had found anything wrong, he would either have killed Jesus or jailed Jesus, but he wouldn't have sent Jesus back to Pilate. 
Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done a second time. Here's two, in, in, in close order, two pronouncements of his innocence by Pilate in agreement with what Herod had found. Jesus is innocent. Is it not ironic then that he says, I'm going to punish Jesus? I mean, that's not, that's not just irony, right? I mean, that's, that's absolute weakness, his desire to punish Jesus at this point is not because Jesus deserves it. He's just trying to find a way to assuage the, the anger, the frustration of the Jews. Now, he's been dealing with this since he got out of bed, basically. And they have only grown more urgent, pressed harder in their pursuit. And let me just punish him. He's not really done anything that deserves death. Let me just punish him. Let me just beat him a little bit. As if he'd not been beat enough already. And then, verse 22. When they don't accept his offer to beat Jesus and release Jesus. He says again. What has he done? What evil has he done? I have found no guilt in him. I will punish and release him. What's their answer? Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. They will not grow weary. In that. They do not grow weary in that. They continue to press that. The scripture tells us, verse 23, they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. Crucify, crucify, crucify. Let me just point out the, another irony here. As they're gathered in this courtyard, these people who are gathered, who won't accept the punishment of an innocent man, many of them are the same voices that were crying, Hosanna, praise him who comes in the name of the Lord, just earlier in the week. I know it's taken us months to get from his entry into Jerusalem to this moment where he's being tried by, or tried by Pilate, but the reality is this is just a matter of, of a few days. They are still facing the Passover. The Passover is still before them. Thousands of them, maybe hundreds of thousands of them, have gathered from all over Israel into Jerusalem so that they could celebrate the Passover. And when Pilate calls the chief priests and the elders and the leaders and the people, he's calling people who likely would have walked in and seen Jesus on that donkey who would have laid their cloaks down and laid down palm branches crying out Hosanna Hosanna and now they're screaming crucify him because they don't want to just see Jesus punished and released even though he's innocent they want to see him dead and then verse 24 we see it come to the end where he says, where it says, so Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He caves in. He concedes. And he is not joining them in an act of justice, but the miscarriage of justice, an act of injustice. He releases the guilty man and condemns the innocent one. So the accusers and the judge in this trial, in a pursuit of justice, have failed. I wonder if we feel this, if we recognize the depths and the weight of this. But to really understand how this miscarriage of justice took place, this perpetrating of injustice, we really need to take a look at Jesus. See, in Jesus' pursuit of justice, he endured unjust judgments and punishment. See, if we aren't careful, we'll paint Jesus as a victim, as if in some way he was out of control, as if in some way 
that this is just something that happened to him, that it wasn't always part of his plan. If we're not careful, we'll misunderstand and think that, oh my gosh, Jesus had, had some other process he was going to work out and he just wasn't powerful enough to get there. If we aren't careful, Jesus becomes the victim rather than the victor. You need to know we don't want to go there. In fact, we can't go there because the scripture, but, but if we go there, everything, the gospel falls part. See, that is not at all what's going on. Let me remind you. Let me remind you. The Jewish leaders had a plan. They were conspiring. They had a murderous uh, uh, conspiracy that they were working out. They were seeking ways to, to kill Jesus. And then Judas comes along and joins them. And they're like, yeah, now we've got him. We're going to get him. We're going to find a way to arrest him when nobody's around. We're going to find a way to take him and have our way with him. What, what we can't forget is at the same time that they had a plan, Jesus had a providential plan of his own. He had a plan. He had devised a plan from eternity past. He had a divine mission of mercy. See, the beauty of, of this is that in Jesus' pursuit of justice, he was doing something drastically different than Pilate and the Jews. Pilate and the Jews were wanting justice selfishly. The Jews, in their blindness, in their, in, their, in their insensitivity, in their misunderstanding, in their lack of clarity, they think Jesus is guilty. And they're seeking to save their own skin, save their own religion, save their own position, save their own ideals. They long for justice selfishly. They're looking for justice for themselves. Pilate, his pursuit of justice is just like, man, I just want peace again. I just want these people gone. I want this, this problem dealt with. I want to wash my hands of Jesus. In fact, in John, there's going to be a moment where he does that. There's something radically different here about Jesus' pursuit of justice. You see, Jesus isn't pursuing justice for himself. He's pursuing justice for his Father and for you and me. Jesus is pursuing justice out of an act of love for his Father and a love for his people. Jesus is giving himself up to pay the price to ensure that justice can occur. Jesus' pursuit of justice is for us. This is radically different than any other pursuit of justice we see in our world. This is true justice being paid for and provided. This is a true justice, not a selfish justice that justifies an individual. This is a justice that maintains the righteousness of God and the justice and the righteousness of his people. See, instead of seeking justice for himself, Jesus decided to endure the beatings, the mockery, the lies, and the eventual condemnation I mean, just imagine what it was that day as one who over and over had been called innocent remains in his shackles as one who had been condemned as guilty is released and walks away. I don't have any way to prove this. I don't, I don't know uh, that we may find out when we get to heaven if, if we're worried about asking this question maybe, but I wonder if Jesus hung on Barabbas' cross that day. You see, he was the one that was supposed to be condemned as guilty. He was the one that was an insurrectionist and a murderer, it says. You see, this is ironic, isn't it? He's guilty. They know it. And he's guilty of the very thing that Jesus has been condemned for but he's been found innocent in. Pilate says, you brought him to me as an insurrectionist. He's not an insurrectionist. He's not leading a rebellion against Rome, but this man is. This man's an insurrectionist. He's a murderer. He deserves to die. You see, Jesus wasn't the only person crucified on the day he was crucified, right? There's already two crosses. There's already going to be crucifixions that day. It's no coincidence. I just wonder, if that cross that Jesus hung on was meant for Barabbas. Another, another thought about Barabbas. You know what his name means? I found this interesting. 
literally, you translate his name, means son of the father. Jesus, the night before, had been condemned because he called himself the son of man, which is a reference to Daniel, a prophecy that was stated in Daniel. <laughs> and they say, so, so what you're telling us is you're the son of God. You've said so. Yeah, so, so certainly Barabbas was the son of his father. But Jesus is the son of this heavenly father who stood back in his providential plan and pursuit of justice and allowed his son to be condemned as an innocent man while a guilty man would go free. I wonder what was on Barabbas' mind that night as he lay down and go to bed, went to bed as an innocent man. See, Jesus endures justice on the behalf of his Father and his people. You're innocent of all these charges, but you're going to be crucified. Jesus endured punishment in the place of the guilty so that the guilty could be blessed as if they were innocent. Brothers and sisters, this is good news. I hope you feel it. I hope you understand the weight of it. I hope that this sinks deeply into your soul. But this is good news. Jesus endured punishment in the place of the guilty so that the guilty could be blessed as if they were innocent. In the view of the world, we look back now, we can see this trial is a farce, it's empty. But in the providential plan of God, Jesus' pursuit of justice proves his innocence. It demonstrates the reality that he did not deserve to die, but he chose to die. It demonstrates to us that there is one who would stand in our place and take our sin. And this is vital because he becomes the the, the lamb without spot or blemish who was given as the atonement for our sin. The prophet, priest, and king is our sacrificial lamb by whose death our sins can be forgiven. Our relationship to our creator God can be restored and, and by whose death our life becomes eternal. It's by his death, by his pursuit of justice that these things are true. He is our substitute. This is how he atoned for our sin. This is the substitutionary atonement. Any other view of the atonement misses this piece of, of the picture. It misses the, the weight of what Jesus was doing. It misses what Jesus did for us as he's sentenced to die as an innocent man. He is our substitute. And this substitutionary atonement, it, it satisfies some things for us. There's perspectives that we need to understand in it. It, 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 it perceives or understands or satisfies, accomplishes is a better word. It accomplishes expiation. That's the removal of the guilt of our sin. There's a removal. It, it's taken from us. Like my sin, your sin, it's not even on you anymore. It's taken off of you. There's this removal from you. Psalm 103, verse 12 says this, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. How far is that? How far is the east from the west? It's infinite. You know, I, I take off south. I, I, I head out south, and I'll eventually turn around and be going north. I cross that pole, and I become, and then I'm going north. I, I head off north. Eventually, I'm going to be going south. But how far is the east from the west? I head off west. I'm always going to be going west. I'm never going to be going east. I'll always be going west. I'll never arrive. How far is the east from the west? That is how far your sins have been removed from you in his death. As your substitute, he has removed your sin from you. It is no longer on you. He has expiated that for you. He's propitiated our sin as our substitute. Propitiation is the satisfaction of God's wrath against our sin. There is a bill. There is a debt. There is uh, an incursion. When, Jesus, when, when God said to Adam and Eve, if you eat of the fruit, you will die. 
Death is the wage of sin. Death is what it earns. Death is the bill that comes due in our sin. And Jesus satisfied that debt. He met God's wrath fully. There is no, nothing left to pay. Romans 3, through 26 says, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. There's no, no distinction, none between peoples. Jew and Gentile, we could say it today, white and black. There's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no distinction. We are all sinners. Verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a satisfaction by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus was fighting as our substitute. He was fighting to provide justice for his, he was fighting in the pursuit of justice for his father and for us. He satisfies God's wrath. We see that here. He's, he's presented as a satisfaction by his blood. But look at verse 26. He's also the satisfaction or the justice to his father. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. You see, if God had said to Adam and Eve, you will surely die and then swept their sins away under the rug and not thought about them. That's not just. If God looks at our sins and our rebellion against him and does not demand death, that's not just. One must be a substitute. One must have some payment. One must see the, the, the bill satisfied. In fact, if God had looked at our sin and our rebellion against him and said, you're innocent, even though we're not, and done nothing else about it, he'd be the same as Pilate, an unjust judge who failed in the pursuit of his justice. But Jesus stands in the place in the pursuit of his justice, providing justice to his Father and making us just, satisfying his wrath. This is his atonement for us. This is how he, he, he makes us acceptable. This is how he covers our sin. He doesn't just sweep it under the rug. He pays for it. He deals with it. The next aspect of this atonement, this substitutionary atonement, is reconciliation. The restoration of our relationship with God. Sin separated man from God. Immediately in the garden, they eat the fruit. And immediately they are faced with shame. They're like, oh man, we're naked and I'm ashamed and I need to cover up. So they make clothes. Immediately this division is drawn between them. But then they hear God in the garden and what do they do? They hide. Before they would have been running to meet him, weren't running to be in his presence, walking with him in the cool of the garden, enjoying the blessing of the relationship with the creator. But here they are. Oh no, we've got to hide. Division, separation, and, and at the end of this the curse, God sends them out of the garden and places an angel to guard the gates of the garden. They cannot be in his presence any longer. They cannot enjoy the blessings of relationship with him. How can we now, except by our substitute, Jesus Christ, who reconciles us, who by his substitutionary atonement, by standing in the place of the guilty and making us innocent, reconciles us together with God. 2 Corinthians 5.18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us, brought us back together, restored our relationship. All this is from God who, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And listen, listen, this is important, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He not only reconciled us to God, but he gave us the opportunity to help, to be a part of the process, to see others reconciled to him as well. You and I get the blessing of going with the message of Jesus Christ so that those who are distant can be joined, so that those who are far off can be brought near, so that those who are not citizens of his kingdom can be counted as children of the king. This is the blessing of God's work on your behalf through Jesus Christ. He not only reconciled us, he gave us the ministry of reconciliation by this substitutionary atonement. 
In addition, one last perspective that the substitutionary atonement entails is redemption. The purchase of freedom from oppression. And we see this. We know this. This is part of the, part of the cry of our people today. This, this oppression that they feel, this weight and systemic pressure from those of people in power. Pushing down on those who are less, uh, in a position of less power. Taking advantage of them. Using them. Jesus, Jesus atoned for us and redeemed us. He purchased our freedom. Colossians 1.13, Paul writes, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Listen, in Ephesians he writes it this way, that we are bound and we are following after the course of the world. We are following after the course of the prince of the power of the air. We are following after the desires of our flesh. And he uses this language that demonstrates we are in bondage. I know you don't feel like you're in bondage. You're walking around making choices every day, but you are enslaved to your sin apart from Christ. You are enslaved to the influence of the world apart from Christ. You are enslaved to the prince of the power of the air apart from Christ. And Jesus comes in and pays the price that we might be bought out of that and made free that we might be relieved of oppression but don't 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 misunderstand jesus is not paying satan on your behalf satan doesn't get paid the father gets paid jesus redeems us from the wrath of god he pays and meets and assuages the wrath that we might be brought out of oppression and set and made free. Just like Barabbas on that day. Walking off that podium, going about his business, standing in a place of innocence even though he is guilty. Jesus is our substitute, and as such, he has made the substitutionary atonement on our behalf. In his pursuit of justice, he stood in the place of the guilty so that the guilty could stand in the place of the innocent. You see, and we've got to be careful, because if we're not careful, we'll assume, oh, well, he's taken my sin, he's given me reconciliation and redemption, but, but really I'm just kind of empty-handed, and now it's dependent upon me, and my, my hands are empty, and I decide what to fill them with, and we'll miss the power of what's happening here. That's not what happened with Barabbas. That's not the picture that they're painting with, with, with Barabbas. That's not the, the metaphorical presence of, of what happens with Barabbas. He is not just... He is not just a, a release, but his life is fully restored to him. You see, there's this reality that there's, is, as our substitute, he, he, he gives us this great exchange. There's a doctrinal way of thinking about it. He talks about that he doesn't just leave us morally neutral. He doesn't just take us and leave us empty-handed, but he fills our hands up with the blessings of God. He took God's wrath and gave us God's blessing. He took our death and gave us life. We do, we, we do not stand here in God's presence empty-handed. We stand here holding every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Redemption, forgiveness, uh, 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 pro, uh, adoption. Having, having his grace lavished upon us. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. See, this is what he's done and the picture of what happens with Barabbas in this moment is the painting that shows us this. In one of the commentaries I read from, uh, the Reformed Expository Commentary, uh, Riken, Philip Riken calls out this quote, and I'm going to mess up his name. I, I'm probably saying it wrong, but it's F.W. Krumacher. I, I, don't, I don't know exactly how you say it, but, but he's a German theologian, and he wrote this about what's going on between Barabbas and Jesus, and it says this, he says this, Barabbas and Jesus change places. The murderer's bonds, curse, disgrace, and mortal agony are transferred to the righteous Jesus, while the liberty, innocence, safety, and well-being of the immaculate Nazarene become the lot of the murderer. Barabbas is installed in all the rights and privileges of Jesus Christ, while the latter enters upon all the infamy and horror of the rebel's position. He did not just stand there and receive what was due Barabbas, but Barabbas received everything that was due Jesus. 
When Pilate said he is innocent, Jesus should have walked out of that trial a free man. But that's not who left that day. That's not who went home free. That's not who laid his head down on a pillow. It was Barabbas. Barabbas didn't just stand there. He received everything that was due Jesus. Krumacher goes on. He says, both mutually inherit each other's situation and what they possess. The delinquent's guilt and cross become the lot of the just one. And the civil rights and the immunities of the latter are the property of the delinquent. We don't just stand here empty-handed. We stand here filled up with God's blessing because Jesus took everything we deserved. We are no longer sinners. We are saints because of Jesus. We are no longer distanced. We are brought near. We are no longer uh, 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 aliens, but we are citizens of his kingdom. We are no longer uh, outcasts. We are adopted children of the king. Because of Jesus, our hands are full. Our life is given. Our life is certain and secured because he died. He stood in our place taking the weight of the wrath of God and he drank it in full so that we could walk into the throne room and call God Father. Brothers and sisters, this is what he's done for us. In this act of injustice, Jesus had a plan to exchange our sin for his righteousness. And he's, he, he's not the only one who ever noticed it or called attention to it, but Martin Luther, the great reformer, is certainly often credited with calling it the great exchange. For example, in his comments on Psalm 22, he writes this, This is that mystery which is rich in divine grace to sinners, wherein by a wonderful exchange... Our sins are no longer ours, but Christ's. And the righteousness of Christ, not, not Christ, but ours. He has emptied himself of his righteousness that he might clothe us with it and fill us with it. And he has taken our evils upon himself that he might deliver us from them. A, a, a later time, another time he writes this, Learn Christ and him crucified. Learn it, he says. Learn Christ in Him crucified. Learn to pray to Him and despairing of yourself say, Thou, Lord Jesus, art my righteousness, but I am thy sin. You are my righteousness, and I am your sin. He was innocent. He had never committed a sin, neither in omission or commission. He had never done anything against his father. He had never rebelled in any way. And yet he is called a sinner because he has mine. He has yours. Thou, Lord Jesus, art my righteousness, but I am thy sin. Thou hast taken upon, my, upon thyself what is mine and hast given to me what is thine. Thou hast taken upon thyself what thou wast not and hast given to me what I was not. And just so you don't make the mistake of thinking that this is just some theological perspective by some rowdy theologian. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus endured punishment in the place of the guilty so that the guilty could be blessed as if they were innocent. Brothers and sisters, do you see it? Do you feel it? The justice we desire is found in Jesus. Yes, plead for justice. Yes, go cry out for justice. But know that the only justice we will find in this life is in Jesus. You see, this is not just a theological matter. This is not just some doctrinal perspective talking about substitutionary atonements and great exchanges. This matters every moment of every day. As I'm standing here preaching, it matters. 
Because there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. There is no distinction between me and the Jew. I am no different than them. Every time I rebel against God, every time I reject Him as God, every time I look at the King of kings and Lord of lords and assume He has no authority over my life, I might as well stand there with the Jews and cry out, crucify Him, crucify Him, crucify Him. You see, I didn't swing a hammer, but my sin put Him on the cross. Your sin put Him on the cross. In this great act of injustice, we are culpable. He died in our place and for our sin. We are no different than those Jews. Tomorrow when we walk into the world, when we're not sitting in this place of, of, of understanding this position, making certain that we look really churchy on the outside, when we walk into our life and commit it to ourselves, seeking to justify ourselves by our work, we are no different than the Jews. We are sinners in need of a Savior. I am no different than Pilate. Every time I cower and do not speak truth, every time I concede with the world and walk in unison with them, I am no different than Pilate. Every time I have an opportunity to witness, bear witness to the glory of Jesus Christ, and I say nothing, I might as well with Pilate say, I'll punish him and then release him. I might as well be standing there with Pilate when I say, your arguments are too loud. I don't want to mess with you anymore. It's just easier to crucify him. You see, this matters. Because I am in desperate need of justice. I desperately long for justice. But I can't pay the price for justice. And I forget every day that Jesus has. So why do we need to think about a man who is called innocent and condemned to die anyway? Why should we feel that in the depths of our soul? It matters because it is our very life. There is no no other way. Let's pray.